Good morning. As you know, I kind of like to start sometimes with a little quiz or a test. So let me ask you this morning if any of these people look familiar. Some of these people are going to be before your time, teenagers, but maybe you'll recognize some of them. How about this one? Remember Kimmy from Four House? Next one. Well, if you can see that real well, that's Marie Barone from Everybody Loves Raymond. Next one is Kramer from Seinfeld. The next one is Wilson from Home Improvement. And the last one, of course, is Fred Rogers from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. What do all of those have in common? They're famous television neighbors, right? The text that we're studying this morning has a lot to say about being a neighbor and about who your neighbor is. In fact, the parable of the Good Samaritan should radically alter the way we think of that term, neighbor. So, as we're looking at it this morning, I want to kind of direct our attention away from this idea that I've got to be a Samaritan. And I want us to focus more on seeing the Samaritans in our lives. Look with me, starting at verse 25. Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25, it says, And a lawyer stood up and put him to to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now we have to understand right from the very beginning that the parable of the Good Samaritan is answering those two questions. That's why Jesus gave it. It's answering the two questions. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And who is my neighbor? So we've got to get that right from the very beginning. Now the man who was asking these questions was an expert in Jewish law, which meant he knew the answer to the first question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He's not asking because he really wants an answer. He knows the answer. He's an expert in Jewish law. But that second question comes on the heels of the first. And the answer to that second question relates directly back to the first one. Okay? So we'll see that as we go along as well. This man answers his own question by saying, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the summation of Christianity, isn't it? Love God, love your neighbor. That's what being a Christian is all about. And so this man answers correctly. Jesus knew that he knew the answer, which is why he shoots back when you tell me. And so this lawyer then asked, who is my neighbor? And the reason he is asking that question is because he wants to know, who don't I have to love? There are countless people that the Jew would have seen as unworthy of his love, much less his time and his attention. He had no regard for his enemies, and he had no intention of showing them love. A fellow Jew would certainly be defined as his neighbor. But beyond that, Gentile, Samaritan, or whoever... He wasn't going to be careless or reckless with his love. Again, you keep in mind that this is an expert in the law. 
He knew the law. He knew what it said in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, for instance, where it reads, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Many rabbis had created a loophole to define who they wanted their neighbor to be. They limited that term neighbor to a fellow Israelite. So for them, the Ten Commandments would read, Thou shalt not steal from a Jew. Thou shalt not kill a Jew. Thou shalt not bear false witness to another Jew. You see where I'm going? They had even rewritten parts of the law and some of the rules and regulations concerning the Sabbath so that they could get themselves off the hook. For instance, if a wall fell on someone on the Sabbath, the, ra- the rules or the regulations that they had come up with allowed them to go and remove some of the rubble to see if it was a Jew. If it was, they were allowed to rescue him from the rubble. If they uncover some of the rubble and find that it's a Gentile, well, he'd just have to wait until the next day, and maybe somebody would rescue him. That's how ridiculous this had gotten. And so that is the context of what we're looking at with Jesus speaking to this man. Remember what Jesus had said earlier in Matthew 5, 43 and 44. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The Jews weren't in the habit of doing that at all. Jesus is confronting the current philosophy, this idea that your neighbor could be narrowly defined. You see, who is my neighbor is a boundary question. It's a limiting question. The man was asking because he wanted to narrowly define who his neighbor is. It's the wrong question, which is why Jesus approached it in the way that he did. It's the wrong question because it reveals the ugliness of this man's heart because you cannot define who your neighbor is. You can only be a neighbor, right? This man had completely missed the boat. And therefore, Jesus takes things to another level when he talks about our heroic enemy, and he brings forth the parable of the Good Samaritan. Look with me in verse 30 and following. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and and went away leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. A little over ten years ago, there was a man by the name of Wesley Autry that was standing on a subway platform in New York City with his two daughters awaiting uh, a, a train. And while they were standing there, a gentleman fell off the platform onto the tracks. You may remember this story. The gentleman could not get back up onto the platform, and so Wesley Autry jumped down to help him But a train was bearing down. Realizing that he was not going to be able to save the gentleman without getting hit by the train, he did the only thing he knew to do. 
he pressed the man down in between the tracks in that hollowed out part and laid on top of him. The subway came and ran over both of them, over the top of them, but they were safe. It was such a close call that Wesley Autry had grease marks on his hat. But as the train came to a stop, Mr. Autry yelled out to the platform and said, Anyone up there, my daughters are there, please, please take care of them until I get out of here. Wesley Autry became a national hero overnight. They called him the Subway Superman. What would you have done if you were in Wesley Autry's position? If you were standing there with your with your kids that day on the subway platform and some way, someone fell off, would, would you jump down to help them? Would you put your life in danger? I mean, you have two kids that you got to take care of. Would you have done that? You see, that's the question we think we're supposed to ponder when we read the Good Samaritan. That's the moral of the message we think that Jesus wants us to get out of this. You see somebody in need, you help them. You, you, you've got to be the hero. You've got to go the, the, the extra mile to help those who are in need. But if that's all you get from that parable, you completely miss what Jesus was trying to get across. This isn't just about, am I willing to be the good Samaritan when the need arises? This is not just about being moral or charitable. This is not about crossing boundaries as much as it is about looking beyond ourselves and not only seeing the need, but seeing who it is that is in need. You see, if this were only about being moral and good and helping others and doing good so you can be good, Jesus would have told the parable differently, wouldn't he? I mean, he probably would have said, you know, a man's lying in the ditch, two people come by, they don't help him, one guy does, end of story. But Jesus brought ethnicity into it. He brought race into it. Why would he do that? Why is that an important point? Well, because Jesus was shattering the Jews' moral universe. I mean, the hero being a Samaritan was a plot twist that none of them ever expected. But it seems, you know, so many times we look at this parable and we walk away saying, okay, the moral of the message is I've got to do good so that I can be good and so that I can feel good. So much more to this than just morality and being charitable. You know, there used to be a time when you could watch superhero movies and tell who was the good guy and who was the bad guy, right? It used to be the case that the good guys wore white, the bad guys wore black, and it was easy to discern between the two. The Lone Ranger rode a white horse. He was such a good shot, he could shoot the gun out of the bad guy's hand without otherwise hurting them, right? Adam West played Batman many, many years ago on television. There was no doubt he was the good guy, and the Penguin and the Joker were the bad guy. Now you have the Dark Knight. He's dressed in black. He's almost kind of sinister. I mean, is he a good guy? Well, I think so, but sometimes it's hard to discern, right? Well, what about when I was a kid, and don't judge my parents for letting them let me watch this, but uh, I was a big Godzilla fan. Remember the old Godzilla movies? If you saw Godzilla walking down the street, you'd run in terror. But he's a monster there to kill the bad monsters, right? And then you've got these reformed superheroes, right? Like Professor Snape and, and, and Thor's uh, jealous brother, Loki, you know. There's so many 
uh, movies nowadays that it's hard to tell who the good guy is and who the bad guy is. The good guy may be on drugs, he may be an alcoholic, he may be a really bad person, but it's okay because in the end he does some good stuff. He tortures, he maims, and he kills, but he only does that to the bad guy, so after all, he's okay. The Jews had it figured out, at least in their mind. It wasn't hard to tell. They were the good guy, and everybody else was the bad guys. Jews were the good guys. They were the hero because they were God's chosen people. And the Gentiles, the Samaritans, all the others, they were the bad guys. The Jews did not look with favor on them because they didn't believe God did. They wanted nothing to do with the Gentiles and and the Samaritans, all them, because they didn't believe that God wanted anything to do with them. They were the hero of God's story because they were God's chosen people. Good and Samaritan didn't go together. That's an oxymoron. They didn't see those two terms as being compatible. And so, the way they looked at this whole thing is because they were God's chosen people. They were the hero. And so you can see how Jesus' plot twist would have thrown them for a loop. And here comes Jesus saying, no, you're not the hero. In fact, the hero is that lonely Samaritan that you look down on. The parable of the good Samaritan isn't just about being good and doing good to your sworn enemy. Jesus' message isn't just do like the Samaritan, because it's not just about morals or being a good person. This is a parable about seeing. Go back to verse 23 of Luke chapter 10, and notice what Jesus says to his disciples just before this episode. He says, turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wish to see the things which you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. And then in the next chapter, he says this, The eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Jesus isn't just telling us a parable about doing. It's about seeing. How's your eyesight? And not just the eyes in your head. How about the eyes of your heart? What do they see? Jesus doesn't want us to just be the good Samaritan as much as he wants us to see the Samaritans in our lives. So who are they? Who are the Samaritans in your life? The homosexual individual? The transgender? The Democrat? The Republican? The pro-lifer? The pro-abortionist? The NRA member? The lesbian? Who is it? Is it... uh, Is it the Baptist, the Methodist, the Lutheran, the Catholic? Do I need to go further? Who are the Samaritans in your life? Who are those people that that you look at, and whether you want to admit it or not, you know that deep down in your heart, you don't have a lot of favor for them. You don't look at them in the same way you do those people that you really love and really respect and really care about. Who are the Samaritans in your life? Because those labeled individuals I just mentioned, This is a fact. You can't argue this with me. God loves them. And trust me, you do not want to be guilty of hating someone God loves. You don't want that. And so when it comes 
to the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's not just about being a Good Samaritan. It's about seeing the different Samaritans in our lives. What do you think Jesus meant when he said to the expert in the law, go and do the same? What do you think he meant by that? At first glance, it seems like Jesus is telling the lawyer, go and help the helpless, just like the Samaritan did. But is that all that Jesus intended for us to take away from this? Do good, be good, so that you can feel good about yourself. Is that the only message that Jesus is trying to get across? Remember the first question that that lawyer asked. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The original question sets up the deeper answer to the second question. Again, I can't say this enough. Remember that this is an expert in the law that we're talking about. And perhaps he's looking for a legal description here of who his neighbor is. Again, he don't want to be reckless with his love. Maybe he wanted Jesus to give him a list of all the people that would be classified as his neighbor. He wanted specifics. He wanted a clear, concise list of people so that he didn't have to show any more love and compassion to more people than he wanted to. Maybe we're not as bold and as blatant about it, but we're kind of the same way sometimes. We want to mark off boundaries. We want to clearly define who our neighbor is because, I mean, let's face it, we want the warm, fuzzy feeling of helping others, but there are some people we just don't really want the burden of trying to help for whatever reason. Maybe it's, it's just too time-consuming. We don't want to get involved because it, it's going to demand our, our resources, our time and energy, maybe even money. Maybe we walk away and, and walk to the other side of the road like the priest and the Levite because we just don't have time to get involved. We don't want to engage. Or maybe, maybe we don't think much of the person who is lying to us. So do I get to pick and choose who my neighbor is? Do I get to choose who I will be moral to? Is all I have to do is be nice and stop and take care of someone who's in need? Is that all I have to do? And who do I have to do that with? Do you think that if Jesus intended for that to be the takeaway, then the Samaritan man would have been the one in the ditch and the Jew would have been the one helping him? Don't you think that if, if this was only about helping someone in need, that the Jew would have been the one that comes by and helps the lonely Samaritan Jesus says in the story? But that's not how it goes. This is not a just classic love your enemy story. Help those in need, get bonus points because you helped a lonely Samaritan. Now, in Jesus' version, it's very different, and for good reason. Why did the Samaritan stop and help when the two most likely candidates walked by? You know, the, the priest maybe thought the gentleman was dead. Maybe he looked over there and thought he was dead, and he couldn't risk touching a dead person. That would render him unclean for seven days. That, that would not allow him to perform the temple duty. So maybe he just walked on by for fear of being rendered unclean. Maybe the Levite, maybe he walked by for the same reason. Maybe he didn't want to be considered unclean either. But certainly the Levite couldn't give an excuse because that man was his neighbor for sure. I mean, I don't care how narrowly you define it, that man would have been his neighbor, and yet he walks to the other side of the road. But the Samaritan is the one who stops and helps. He's the one who took it upon himself to go the extra mile to help this gentleman. Because when it comes to the question of who is my neighbor, there are no rules and there are no limits. The only thing that mattered in that moment was that someone was in desperate need and they needed help. Let me tell you what doesn't matter in that situation. 
the person's political affiliation, the victim's skin color, the individual's station in life, the person's history, whether or not that individual goes to church, how many times that person has been married, whether they've been in prison or not. In that moment, those things don't matter. What matters is that they are your neighbor and that they are in need, and that's it. And whether you stop and help all depends on what you see first. If the eyes of your heart see those non-essentials first, that's going to determine how much you reach out, if at all. But if you see a soul in need first, above all those non-essentials, then obviously you get the point of what Jesus is trying to say. Now, before you think that I am using this parable to gloss over sin or to... uh, uh, maybe suggest that love and compassion rights all wrongs. Let me assure you that's not the case. What I am saying is this. Some of us need a cornea transplant. Some of us need to look through different eyes. Because we are so affected and we are so consumed by politics. We are blinded by race and prejudice. We are blinded by selfishness. We are blinded by people's sin. We are blinded by other people's beliefs. And we are so nearsighted and we have these cataracts on the eyes of our heart that we can't even see the bigger picture. God loves the people you hate. And He wants those people in heaven every bit as much as He wants you there. And we've got to see that. We need to filter people through the eyes of Jesus. All of us see ourselves in this parable, don't we? I mean, think about it. You've been the one laying by the side of the road, chewed up and spit out by life. Life is peaks and valleys, and you've been in the valley, right? You've been that person lying by the side of the road, robbed by life's circumstances, left for dead. You don't like to admit it, but you've been the priest and Levite, too. I mean, you you don't have to say anything out loud, but say to yourself, You remember those times when you walked by somebody on the other side of the road. You didn't want to get involved. You knew somebody was in need, but you thought somebody else will come along and help them. I don't have time. I don't have the energy or the effort. But we've all been the Samaritan, too. And we like when we're the Samaritan. Because we feel close to Jesus. That's when we feel closest to God, is when we're the Samaritan. We feel good about ourselves, right? When we stop and we helped. Is Jesus not the Good Samaritan? Isn't that another twist that you find in this parable that maybe you hadn't thought about before? Is Jesus not making reference to himself here? Is he not the Good Samaritan, the hero that nobody expected? I mean, you think about it. The Samaritan was the answer to all three of the questions here, right? Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Be a Samaritan. Love God. Love the Samaritans. Love me. Love the people I love. Who is my neighbor, the Samaritan? Which of these proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands, the Samaritan? Jesus is the good Samaritan. He embodies the characteristics of this lowly, despised, rejected man who very easily could have returned hate for hate, but instead made it his mission to show the world a different way of living. The religious people of this day and time, the leaders should have been the ones who were reaching out, who were leading the way by love and compassion. Everybody should have been following them as they led them to the Samaritans, but that wasn't what they were doing. Quite the opposite, right? 
and they showed that they were the ones in need of rescue. These Jews, these Jewish leaders, they were the ones who were the victims, really, because they couldn't see their own demise. And Jesus, the man they despised as a one who would go the distance for them, he would do it all for them as well, but they were too stubborn to see it. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for those who are lying beside the road, who can't help themselves, including those Jewish leaders. And they couldn't see it. They couldn't see their own need. They couldn't see the needs of others. And most importantly, they couldn't see their need for Jesus. How sad that is. So let's not make the same mistake, right? We read a story the other day about a guy named George Turkelbaum, who was a proofreader for a large publishing company in New York City. He was sitting in the open plan office space where he worked and had a massive heart attack and died. And he sat there five days before anybody recognized him. His boss said, you know, he came in early. He left late. It was not unusual for him to be consumed with his work and to be there just head down doing what he's supposed to be doing. Nobody thought anything of it. It wasn't until a janitor found him on Saturday morning that anybody even noticed. For five days, he sat there dead while 23 other co-workers never even noticed. Ironically, he was proof texting, uh, proofreading medical texts when he passed away. But here's a man sitting at his desk, dead for five days, and 23 people around him never even noticed it. How does that happen? I don't know, I wasn't there, so I don't want to pass too much judgment, but how, do, how does that happen with us? How does it happen that there are dead people walking around us all the time and we don't even notice? We live in a world full of walking dead, people who are lost, who are unchurched, who, who need Christ. And many times we don't ever even notice. How is that? Well, maybe... Sometimes it's like George Perkelbaum. They, they can't or won't tell us, right? But can we not admit that sometimes we don't notice because we don't want to? Because we're too busy. We have too many things going on in life. We have too many other things to think about. Somebody else will deal with that. That's the preacher's job, whatever. Let me ask you, who are the Samaritans in your life? Who are they? And let me tell you this. They are not the enemy. They are the victim. Just like you are. The only difference between you and them is that someone saw you work rescue. Someone came to your aid and brought you to Christ. And now you have the opportunity to be the hero. So go and do the same. Let's pray. Most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for another day. We thank you so much for this church and for the opportunity to be here to worship you, to start the week off in the best way possible. Be with your church here that meets at Oldham Lane. Help us, God, to see the Samaritans in our lives, to look past the non-essentials, and to see what truly matters, a soul in need of saving. 
Maybe they turn away. Maybe they don't want our efforts. Maybe maybe they want to stay beside the road, but may it never be because we didn't try to lift them up. May it never be because we never mentioned Christ to them. Help us, God, to be more like Jesus. Be with us and help us, Lord, as we seek to be the hero of your story. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Yeah, I was thinking about this this past week, and we're going to get into this more tonight. By the way, you'll want to be here tonight. Um, we're going to talk about a very uh, timely subject. Um, but I was thinking about that this week, about the invitation, and how the invitation is always just tacked on at the end of the sermon. Do you know what the invitation is? It's an opportunity to get right with God. Now, I know that not everybody is going to walk down that aisle and come up here, and that's okay. We don't demand that you do that. Maybe you want to talk to one of the elders or myself or one of the staff members. That's fine, too. You can set up a time to do that, and we would love to talk with you. But the invitation is an opportunity to get right with God if you're not right with God. The invitation is not a time where you put all your stuff up. That's what it's become, but that's not what an invitation is. And I'm afraid that we're not very inviting sometimes during our invitations. We invite you at this time. David's going to lead us in a song. We invite you at this time, if you need prayers, if you need the support of this church family going forward, if you would like to study the Bible with someone and learn what it means to be a New Testament Christian in the New Testament church, we want to help you with that. You're invited. Come as we stand and as we sit.